today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Becky, who found out that she had an inherited heart condition when she collapsed and passed out while running. The doctors were just there sort of trying to reassure me and the whoever was there, the ambulance people, the nurses, they were just saying, you know, it's OK, Becky, you're in hospital. And I sort of said, you know, I was running a race, I was running a race. And, and they were telling me, it's OK, you finished the race. They didn't tell me I was carried over the finish line on a stretcher. <laughs> From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Molly Tresiden. On the Ticker Tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Becky talks to me about her diagnosis and second diagnosis of an inherited heart condition and how she's come to appreciate the ICD that looks after her heart. Um, So Becky, you found out that you had a heart condition in a very dramatic way one day back in 2007. Could you take me back to that day and tell me what happened? Yeah, of course. So I've never really been one for doing a lot of exercise outdoors. The idea has always been quite a a strange one to me. Um, But every time I decided I wanted to get a bit healthier, I'd sign myself up to some sort of charity race because I figured, you know, I'd give myself an incentive or raise some money for a good cause. And it'll give me that incentive to really get out and train and practice. I wasn't not a long distance runner, but um, I used to sign myself up to do 5Ks. And in particular, over a couple of years, I ran the Race for Life a few times. In 2007, I ran the Race for Life in my hometown of Paul with a friend at the time, Kat. And we we did this run and we'd done some training runs beforehand. I'd run 5K before, but um, on this occasion in particular in Paul Park, which was the venue, lovely venue normally, uh, torrential rain on the day, which is also or great addition to the story it was a really challenging condition really challenging conditions for a run um, I ran the majority of the race perfectly fine with Kat getting on quite well we got to the 4k mark which I, I remember getting to the 4k mark and then later on in the race as we got near the finish we spoke about it and Kat and I decided to go for a sprint finish I think in hindsight sprint finishes should probably be left for the sprinters because for me it turned out to be a really bad call I ran the last kilometre of the race but I probably I'd say about 10 metres from the finish line according to my friend Kat and various other people I basically slowed down running and got a little bit wobbly on my feet before turning round or spinning round and falling backwards, collapsing to the floor. In the process, I knocked myself out on the floor, got a head injury, cut my head and ended up with a, what I didn't know was a heart arrhythmia. It was pretty spectacular by the sound of it, or for what I've been told um, to this day, I don't actually remember running that last kilometre of the race. I've got a bit of a gap in my memory from the 4k mark when I remember seeing that 4k sign when we ran past it to the moment I was jolted awake by the doctors as the ambulance men pushed me on the stretcher into the hospital through the doors at A&E it's always that that jolt and the doors where they push push the trolley through the doors I was quite lucky on the day all all, all said um, I don't remember it but I was quite lucky the two the two people that finished in front of me there was a cardiac doctor from the Royal Bournemouth Hospital and a, a local GP as well who had been running a race as well. And they actually turned around and saw that I collapsed. Um, there was another gentleman that checked on me. And basically, apparently, according to the doctors, when I spoke to them later on, he just shouted out that she's all right. And then he ran off, 
which was a bit weird <laughs> and um, <laughs> very strange. And the um, the doctors actually came back and they did a bit of um, CPR and checked on me and everything until the ambulance team arrived. I also have been told that I t- might have scared a St John's ambulance girl who is on her one of her first days out with the St John's ambulance and rather than getting to deal with a sprained ankle she got me there with my um self knocked out um, unconscious on the floor and yeah not in a very good condition so yeah charity races it turns out were not my my forte (laughs) at that point but quite lucky as you say that you were there with a couple of doctors rather than if you'd been out say running by yourself somewhere you know out in a woods somewhere Absolutely. I mean, I count myself incredibly lucky in terms of um, what happened that day, despite the fact that I ended up in hospital. The race for life in pool was held a stone's throw from the where the A&E department was at that point. So the ambulances were very near. And all of my running, all of my training essentially for that race had been done in our local forest where I ran with my dog at the time, Lily and we would go for little runs around the forest on, and I was on my own so I mean if this had happened when I was in the forest on my own with the dog as dutiful as she was bless her I don't think that there could have been the same outcome I think it could have been a lot more negative mm. an outcome if that had been the case. Yeah dogs still not great at CPR I don't think. They're not no no <laughs> they come running over to you and they're all excited but then yeah she she would have just probably wandered off so <laughs> you know what you can't blame a dog can you for that so um, yeah but definitely not good at CPR and obviously at that stage I didn't have anything in place to really do anything to help me so um, yeah I would have been mm. a bit stuck yeah. And so what was it like when you woke up from that jolt in hospital you know, what was that like? What was going through your mind then? Uh, it was it was really very daunting. I think um, I remember um, <laughs> I try to I, I try to be quite a um, I don't try to make a fuss about stuff. Mm. But um, in this on this occasion, I remember waking up and I wanted to scream because um, they put my heads in those block my head in those blocks. And it was those blocks that keep you in place. So I was trying to move my head and I couldn't move my head. I couldn't move anything very well. And I was lying down and there was all people talking. I couldn't see properly. And I just remember trying to scream, but I was sort of trying to scream holding it in. So I wasn't really making any noise, but I was probably just making a sort of a really weird mumbling noise. Mm. And the doctors were just there sort of trying to reassure me and the whoever was there, the ambulance people, the nurses, they were just saying, you know, it's OK, Becky, you're in hospital. And I sort of said, you know, I was running a race. I was running a race. And, and they were telling me, it's OK, you finished the race. They didn't tell me I was carried over the finish line on a stretcher. <laughs> but... Um, but they, they did tell me that I finished the race and I was I was just so confused because as far as I was aware, I was, you know, running my race that morning. And then I was actually due to move to North Wales the, the day after and start a new job in North Wales. But, um, yeah, I had, had to delay that a little bit while I recovered. And do you remember what they told you about what had happened to you? Yeah, they, they explained that I had had some sort of arrhythmia, so... Um, In terms of my heart, I had overexerted myself. Um, At the time, the condition we thought I had was something called long QT syndrome. What had basically happened is when I was running, I'd pushed myself that little bit too hard and my heart wasn't able to keep up. The electrics in my heart went a little bit funny and my heartbeat was beating too fast. Because it was beating too fast, the blood wasn't able to pump effectively and I blacked out. And that's basically what had caused the incident down at Pool Park. So it was a bit of a shock. It wasn't completely surprising because my mother has the same condition and I, obviously I've inherited that from her. So 
there was a possibility, but all the tests I'd done in previous years had been negative and we didn't think I'd inherited it. This was just a bit of a rude awakening (laughs) to actually Mm. find out that I did have it. So, yeah, so when they told you that it was something to do with your heart, did you immediately make that link with your mum collapsing? I think I had a good idea that it was probably that, yeah. Um, the, mm. the one saving grace, if anything, of that that day was that actually my mum was down at the race as well. She was actually watching and taking photos. And there was a photo we managed to get of me coming in just before I collapsed, but as I had just before... Um, just after she took the photo, she'd walked around the other side of the, um, they have the inflatable finish lines mm. and she didn't see me collapse, which was very grateful for. But um, as soon as they'd said it was something heart related, I was pretty certain that that was, it was going to be the same thing. Mm. But it's still, I mean, up until that point, you were fit and healthy 24 year old and it still must have come as a real shock. And and did you get a oh, sense absolutely. then that it was going to kind of change your life permanently I don't think I really appreciated the scale at the time of of just how much of a a change it was going to be I think um I knew it was going to to be an an issue in terms of like it was something I'd have to deal with but at 24 it was certainly it was something that was quite scary because I you know the thought of having to manage something like this for the rest of your life was a was a big thing to actually think about I think um just the the maintenance of a heart condition, you know, um, being re- relying upon medication. I was very, the latest sort of weeks after this, once everything had settled down, you know, I didn't go immediately on to taking medication because I went for the um, defibrillator in the first instance. And I was try I tried to avoid medication for, for some time because being tied down to a prescription on a daily basis, having to remember to take medication, at 24, you know, I, I wasn't really organised enough to, to, with my, to my, with my finances, let alone having to take medication to keep me, keep me on my feet. So, um, so yeah, it was, um, it was a big thing to, to deal with and think about. And how long did you end up staying in hospital? I was actually in hospital just under two weeks the first time round. So because of my head injury, um, it took them a couple of days to actually get everything processed through and to see me and wait for me to sort of recover enough to really look into things further. So um, I had um, four four or five days in Paul Hospital before they moved me over to the um, specialist sort of cardiac department at the Royal Bournemouth Hospital. And I was there for the, the remainder of the weeks. Um, one thing I noticed when I was there, I was by far the youngest on the cardiac ward. Mm. And um, without, with the exception of a bit of a headache, I had a symptom free. So it was it was it was a difficult that was probably more difficult than the initial sort of dealing with it itself it was being in that in that ward with all of the the older um older ladies and actually <laughs> sort of like just sort of being in that situation um i tried to make the best of it by um they gave me permission once i was sort of recovered enough to go to the shops so i would be going to the shops for the various ladies on the ward and buying them their daily newspaper and um <laughs> cartons of ribena um because it was just yeah as a 24 year old it was very difficult just being confined to a hospital bed for two weeks while they decided what they were going to do with me I had an operation and I had a defibrillator fitted in 2007 which I've had changed since for a, a new one but um but yeah so I ended up going for the defibrillator and yeah it's been my constant companion ever since Hmm. So that was quite a conscious choice by you to have the defibrillator. Absolutely. 
I was in two minds at first. Again, like I say, the idea of medication at um, the age of 24 was not appealing. So the idea of going into surgery and um, coming out with a lifelong companion was even less appealing, um, to be perfectly honest with you. But um, I went back and forth a few times and I spoke to the nurses that were on the ward and I was told a story about a young man who it really did make me make, change my mind and actually consider it, it made me decide to get the operation because it was a it was a young man who was from the local area who was fitter than me and just more active than me and he has chosen not to get the operation just yet and he actually collapsed on a, a when he was out and passed away so um I just it just really brought it into real a real sort of it was a real reality check for me and I just thought I I couldn't couldn't risk doing that to my family so yeah I I just was terrified that would happen so I agreed to get the defibrillator Mm. and how was it actually actually committing to that and, and having that operation yeah the the operation itself was I mean it was more daunting just the fact it was an operation once I went in there you know they were an amazing team really good I've got really really lovely team of surgeons the anaesthetists you know they were all really really competent really professional I knew exactly what was going to happen when I went in there incidentally when I had the box changed however many years later I had the same anaesthetist and surgeon the next time as well which was which was brilliant because I actually remembered remembered the names but um yeah it was it was scary I'd never sort of say to anyone that it's a pleasant operation I don't think any operation is pleasant and when I came out into recovery and they, I remember them asking me sort of how much is the, how, how painful is it? And, and my initial response was, I feel like I've been hit by a bus. Um, so they gave me some more morphine and then I downgraded it to, I feel like I've been hit by a car. Um, <laughs> so I obviously managed to have my sense of humor when I came out of surgery. Um, but it was, it was, it's, it's a necessary evil as far as I'm concerned. It's not, mm. no one's going to willingly sign up to, to go under the knife for any reason. And even if it's a heart condition, None of us want to go and have this operation, but sometimes we just have to bite the bullet and say, well, it's going to be in the long term, it's going to be a positive for us. And it's it's going to help us spend more time with our friends and family and not mm. have to worry so much about the alternative. Because the idea of having the ICD is that if your heart goes into a bad rhythm, then that can shock it back to a regular rhythm. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. So it's a um, it tends to be a bit of a, a misconception with the pacemakers and the ICDs. Um, and I think the pacemaker obviously is there twenty four seven to make sure your heart is doing what it needs to do, and make sure that it's beating at a rate that is effective and useful for you. the The ICD tends to tends to sort of sit there in the background every day. It just gen- it just closely sort of it monitors my heart rate on a day to day basis. And if there's ever that occasion where my heart rate is going to go inappropriate, like it has done on a couple of occasions since, um, then my ICD is just there to kick in and almost reset it. I like to think of it as it's sort of like rebooting a computer. Um, If my electrics go a bit funny, the ICD just shocks it back into a normal rhythm. Mm. Um, But the rest of the time, it's just sat there monitoring me. So um, it doesn't do, I I don't even remember I have it now, to be honest, which is is the Mm. best thing. Mm. Yeah. So you got up one day to go and do... A race for life and yeah. then two weeks later you come out of hospital 
diagnosed with a heart condition and yeah. living with an ICD. That's a pretty huge thing to have to go through. It, it was, it was. And I don't think, I think mentally, I don't think I necessarily dealt with it as effectively as I could have at the time. It was one of those things where it's just such a big thing. It seems too big to deal with. I sort of, over the years, I've sort of, I've found talking about it is very useful. And I've just found that it's much easier to deal with once you just sort of accept it and just sort of, you know, it's not the end of the world. And it's just sort of trying to get your head around the fact that, yes, it's different. Yes, I'm always going to have this as part of me, but there are also benefits to it. It's if I didn't have it, there's at least two occasions in the past, the past 14 years where stuff, things have happened and I wouldn't be here if I did, potentially wouldn't be here if I didn't have it. So um, it's, I see it much more as a lifeline now as I do a sort of a weight around my neck. Mm, Yeah. And does your mum live with an ICD as well? She does. Yeah. So my mum's got one as well. She's had, um, she's had her since 90, well, she's had them since 96. Mm -hmm. Um, She's had various battery changes as well. The, um, The thing with the ICD that is frustrating is that obviously they don't last forever. Um, you do need to have battery changes every now and then. But the um, the beauty of it is if you don't have one that goes off too regularly, the battery will last longer. So the, the ultimate aim is to get an ICD like I'm lucky enough to have that just sits in there for years on end and doesn't have to do anything. And then eventually it gets changed. I'm still hoping, though, I must admit, I'm still hoping they'll come up with a type of design where they can sort of sit me next to some sort of charging point and <laughs> just charge me remotely. If they can do it with a mobile phone, then you would hope that one day they can do it with an ICD. Yeah, definitely. And just have yeah. them, you know, regular places. S- sit in the proximity for a couple of hours and recharge it a little bit. Yeah, but while I... you're having a coffee. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So um, there's, there's, I'm sure it will happen eventually. It's amazing what they can do with medical science. So um, yeah, but hopefully at some point we'll we'll see that. Yeah, my mum's got the same. She's got the ICD. And again, she lives with it in the same way I do really we just it's just who we are now it's um part of our family history and it's just something we've learned to live with mm. and you'd said that so when you initially went into hospital the diagnosis that you were given was long QT syndrome which is a type of inherited heart condition yeah. um, but since then you've actually been re-diagnosed is that right I have yes yes so um when I went in initially, I did a lot of tests when I was in hospital. That's part of what I did in that two weeks when I wasn't making these little runs down to the shop for the um, the ladies on the ward to get their, their daily newspapers. Um, I was doing sort of the exercise tests and things like that. And they were just basically trying to narrow down what type of arrhythmia I had. Um, the heart is one of the most studied parts, organs in our body. And the number of conditions that are associated with it is just is just enormous so they they wanted to try and get a better idea about what I had they finally decided it was most likely to be long QT syndrome so um the QT interval in my heartbeat was was elongating getting too long and that was what was causing me to pass out but there was a little bit of a caveat with it in that with long QT syndrome there's usually certain markers that you can identify that are damaged when it comes to the sort of the, the make the genetic makeup and I didn't have those markers that were damaged so at the time it was it was almost it was the best the best estimate and it could have just been the case that in a few years time they would have found a new marker that was also long QT that I fitted mm. into instead it turns out actually that I have a different condition altogether which is which has very similar symptoms to long QT but it is actually, it's being called, it's, it's categorised um, under a different name. 
and um, I was I found that out last year in 2020. So um, my younger sister was having a baby, and up until that point, we hadn't had any reason to think that she had a heart condition. But obviously, if there's one time in your life that you're going to have to really build up a lot of adrenaline and actually sort of like be put in a position like I put myself in on the day of that race, it would be when you're actually having a child. So we were really keen to just make sure that my sister wasn't going to be putting herself at any risk mm. um, in the run up to or delivering the, um, her little daughter Delilah. What we did is um, I got in contact with Bournemouth Hospital and I basically just asked them, I said, is there any possibility we can find out what whether my sister has the heart condition that mum and I have got? Because until that point, she hadn't, she hadn't been symptomatic. There was no reason for us to think that she had been, but it was just sort of to check that off the, the list, really, mm. and just get a bit of reassurance. And they actually offered to do some genetic testing. The genetic testing was really easy. So what they did is um, they basically posted us these little packs and we just had to give a, a, a saliva sample and just do a genetic testing, sent it off to a lab. And they actually were able to identify my condition as something called CPVT. The scientific name, which I learned because, you know, I think if you're going to get a, a, an impressive scientific heart condition, you need to learn the name, <laughs> is um, catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. Oh, well so, done. I know. I was so, so happy <laughs> to learn that. My, everyone who knows me thinks I'm really sad. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, um, basically with CPVT, it's an adrenaline-based condition and it is some characteristics that are very similar to long QT. But um, in this case... I was actually had the markers for that rather than the markers for long QT. My sister, they checked and she didn't have it. So we were able to determine that actually, although she's related to me and she's related to my, obviously my mum, she had managed to miss that when it comes to the, um, the heart lottery. So um, yeah, really happy news for them. As a charity, the British Heart Foundation depends on the generosity of donors to continue carrying out our life-saving research. Thank you to all of those who already give. It's truly appreciated. If you too would like to donate, you can do so by going to bhf.org.uk slash donate. And now, back to the conversation. And did it change anything about your treatment when you were re-diagnosed? Not at the moment, so I... The, the difference in diagnosis hasn't made any difference. But from my point of view, I feel a lot more happy knowing what I, the condition actually is. I think mm. always know, always knowing it was potentially long QT, but not quite sure, was a little bit difficult. It was nice to just have an answer in the end. Mm. And even nicer yeah. to find out my sister didn't have it. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like you say, it's any new family members now can be tested for exactly the right thing, can't they? Absolutely. So at some point um, in the future, um, don't know when I teach full time at the moment, so it's fairly hectic. But at some point, we'd love to start a family. And when we do, you know, it would be nice to know in advance if our children are going to have to deal with this. There is sort of certain situations where you can sort of have a family and not have to worry about heart conditions and things. Um, but then obviously, because the condition I have, I believe it's um, autosomal dominant, even if we sort of do look at sort of any sort of specialist treatment, the likelihood is that if we have kids, there is still a chance they're going to get it. So at least we're going into it with our eyes open and we know whether or not hmm. it's going to be an issue or not, or whether we can we can deal with it when we know about it, basically. 
And do you know, if you don't mind me asking, how your condition and your ICD would affect you during pregnancy? Um, From talking to doctors, I've been told that um, it shouldn't be too much of an issue if I'm just doing my day to day, sort of like doing what I do normally. I would be much more closely monitored if Mm. I was to if we were to start a family and there would be I would be seeing more specialist care than a standard pregnancy just purely because of the heart condition. But from speaking to specialists previously, it shouldn't be it's not necessarily going to be a real added stress to mm. to the situation. Mm. That's great to hear. <laughs> it's, it's kind of amazing that uh, developments in diagnosis and in science mean that that's able to happen and then that you're able to look out for it in any children that you have. Yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah, definitely. Just to be prepared for it and to know whether it is something we need to worry about, because having to people look at heart conditions as being a a real game changer and it really is the end of the world and it is a really big thing it's a really scary thing and it's a thing that takes a lot of getting used to but actually once you know about it you've got more of a chance of being able to deal with it and actually learn to live with it in terms of my lifestyle I haven't had to adapt that much to having a heart condition okay there's certain things I can't do anymore I'm never going to be able to skydive I'm not going to be able to play rugby, but to be honest, I didn't do them anyway. So um, it's not really, it's not really a massive thing for me. Hmm. And do you think that your life has gone in a different direction because of your heart condition? Like, is there anything that you think like you've sort of consciously done or not done because of it? In terms of going differently, I don't think my life has really. I've still done a lot of different things with a heart condition. I just have to think about things a bit more carefully beforehand to make sure that I am doing the right thing. So um, the job that I was due to start when I was running the charity race, I was due to move up to North Wales and start working for a company in North Wales and um, travelling out to oil rigs in the North Sea and various other places. And I still did that after I'd recovered from my operation. So I worked there for a couple of years and I used to go out on a helicopter to oil rigs in the North Sea where I'd look at, well, initially do one job. And then later on, I was looking at little fossils down a microscope for 12 hour shifts. So um, it was you can still do an awful lot when you've got a heart condition. Mm -hmm. And now you're you're working as a science teacher. Do you ever talk to your pupils about it? I do. Yeah, I am. I am quite a. um, um, I teach mainly physics and chemistry. But occasionally when I do teach biology and I get the opportunity to teach the heart lesson, there is a a part of that lesson which actually talks about defibrillators and and pacemakers and things like that. So um, I always tell the kids about it. I'm not I'm not shy about the fact I've got a defibrillator. I think it's a it's a wonderful piece of equipment and I feel quite privileged to have it. So I, I tell the kids all about it and give them the sort of the shortened version of how I got it if they're interested. But um, yeah, it's really, um, it's, it's they find it really interesting, actually. It's a really interesting topic. Um, more recently, I actually went up to St. Bart's in London and had a cardiac echo as well. They did an ultrasound of my heart. So I've been able to incorporate that ultrasound into my lesson content as well and just show the kids what the ultrasound would look like. So what a heart looks like when it's beating. And yeah, it's it's an interesting sort of link to just tie into the into the curriculum. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. It makes the lessons a bit more tangible for them. Yeah. And they can look at a picture of your heart 
yeah absolutely and they just look at the beating on this um this little video I've got and yeah it really yeah really they do some of them do find it interesting some of them still hate science and they're still not interested (laughs) but that is that's teenagers for you (laughs) and you talked a bit earlier about Facebook groups and the support and stuff that you find there yeah and is that a way, is that something that you kind of actively sought out was to find other people with similar conditions? Absolutely. So what happened initially was a number of years ago, I was contacted by the Royal Bournemouth Hospital and they told me, um, well, they basically asked me if I could chat to a young girl who was in a very similar situation to me. And she was she was based um, elsewhere in the Basin, sort of Basingstoke direction, I believe it was, um, just a bit further away. And she was looking at the prospect of having a defibrillator fitted and she was she was younger than I was at the time when I had mine and she was obviously very worried and they just said to me you know were you are you willing to talk to this this girl and have a have a chat with her about it and just explain your experiences because I think that's one of the big sort of blockers the big things about these defibrillators and pacemakers is if you haven't got anyone to sort of talk to about it and anyone to actually express your worries to that actually Mm. has been through it it can be a really daunting daunting thing so so I contacted this girl whose name was Kerry um and just sort of had a chat with her and and was able to reassure her that actually you know it's not the end of the world and it is a a really helpful thing to do to to get done since then from talking to Kerry I actually started my own Facebook group which has been it's been sat there on Facebook for years and it didn't really it was quite a slow burner. It didn't really have an awful lot going on to begin with, but more recently it really has, um, it's taken off a little bit and we've got a couple of hundred members now um, who have all come in sort of looking for information about having a defibrillator, just some advice and with the other members of the group, the members of the group are wonderful at actually just reassuring people and giving their own experience. So my, my Facebook group is Defibrillators and Pacemakers because sometimes bionic is just better. In my opinion, it is better. Um, but yeah, so that's my group. And um, I've also got a lot of really good advice from another group with my running. I spoke to various members of the Cardiac Athletes group, which is also another Facebook group. And that's for more your sporty cardiac patients. So your people who do runners, running, cycling, you know, and these are people that have had heart operations, they've had bypasses, you know, all of this stuff. And they're getting back and getting out there and doing exercise. So between the um, between my own my defibrillator group and the cardiac athletes group, I found a lot of really lovely people and some really positive support. And I've also been able to share my story and provide support from my point of view too for people that need it. Yeah, it's one of those things where the internet really comes good, isn't it? Like the fact that you can just connect with these people so easily is something that's really yeah. fantastic. Yeah, it's it really is. And it, it really is. It's it's so great when you sort of get someone ask a question. And it could be something as simple as, you know, what am I supposed to wear after I've had a defibrillator operation? Mm. You know, how am I supposed to dress myself when I can't raise my arm above a certain height? And and then people can comment and say, you know, well, I find button up shirts are really helpful or wear a cardigan that's a couple of two sizes too big if you've got one sort of things. And it's just that's getting those answers to those questions. It just reassures people. Mm. And um yeah gives them the opportunity to really or even just vent their frustration if they want to because a lot of people that come on there are genuinely sort of just heard they need to get a defibrillator uh, or a pacemaker and feeling really scared about it yeah yeah that's great and yeah. um 
I think you put up a post on there a while ago asking people in the group if there was anything that they wish that they'd have known about having an ICD. I was wondering, did you get any uh, responses to that that you'd like to share? Yeah, looking at the questions that were posted on my group, one of the questions I had, um, or something, it was sort of the questions that people, it was what people wish they'd known, obviously, and something people said that they wish they'd known. Um, one of our groups suggested, um, Mark suggested, he wished he'd known about the rhythmic pulse that a pacer often makes inside for the first few months until they adjust it. So I think in some situations, obviously, when people have had the a pacemaker put in then it can make a bit of a pulse just to while it's getting used to it by the look of it right Um, yeah 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 and and mark didn't know about that before Mm. he had the operation so it was a it came as a bit of a shock um no pun intended um came (laughs) as a bit of a shock when um when obviously he's having the operation and um and he's had it and then it's just doing that that pulsing afterwards yeah so it's one of those like is this normal type things yeah Yeah. and that's a lot of the things that we get in the group is sort of is this normal I'm just going to the um I actually shared it again the other day so um someone else has said what were the limitations on day-to-day activities um in terms of what you can and can't do now that was another one Mm. that um seemed to get a lot of um that people are very confused by is you know um it can be seen as a real a real sort of a a stopper from living a normal day-to-day life and actually it doesn't have to be it can be you can be just as active sensibly Mm. as you would be normally yeah but I um, guess that's one of those really hard things where you get home after the operation and then you go to do something and you're like oh no I didn't ask about this particular thing is this okay yeah. (laughs) yeah and that's kind of why I put the group there is just so that if people don't ask about that and if they don't want to then it can it can give you the opportunity to just ask someone and get an answer so another common one Lara on my group she asked um you know driving that is a big one for us because actually um something people don't always realize is what if you do get shocked that's your driving license suspended um in the us and the uk for a good couple of months so you know finding out that if your defib goes off then you're a pedestrian for six months so um Mm. that is and that can be quite a big thing yeah Um, it can have a really big impact that's happened to me twice (laughs) and um it was a bit of a learning curve um getting used to it Thankfully, at the time in the UK, I don't know if they still do it, but they used to give me a, a bus pass because I was um, obviously mm. medically exempt. But I had a bus pass to help me get around. They don't do that in the States at the moment, unfortunately, according mm. to according to Lara. But um, yeah, the other one, um, the other question that was on here. So it's um, just knowing, yeah, like I think a lot of the questions tended to be the other, a lot of the responses I had tended to be, the mental side of recovery knowing what to expect after you'd had the operation so Mm. what was what was a normal amount of twinges and soreness and for how many weeks afterwards you know so what if because a lot of the questions that we get on the group are sort of like oh um, someone's had an operation and it's sort of a couple of weeks later and it's still feeling really sore or really itchy and is that normal and things and we'll tend to if we're not sure, we'll tend to sort of refer them to the doctors. But just having that sort of understanding of how to deal with it afterwards. Hmm. And also yeah. the acknowledgement mentally that it is a really daunting thing to deal with. A lot of the adjustment that people have, that people struggle with from looking on my group is that actually they'll have the operation and they'll deal with the operation. But then mentally, their, their brain's still thinking, you know, oh, I'm still, it's it's a real in, 
not an inconvenience, but it's it's a really drastic change. And it's just coming to terms with the fact that that drastic change is not going to be a really bad thing for you. It's actually a really good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I imagine that one of the things that just helps that is time and just getting through yeah. each day in a normal way and then kind of gradually realising that you can live a normal life. Yeah. I mean, they always say that time is a great healer. And I think especially in something like this, it it's something that does it does get a lot easier with time and even sleeping on your side. I mean, I've had my defibrillators now since 2007. I still can't sleep properly on that side, but it has got easier over time because you actually you go to sleep and you can sort of it sort of you feel it when you're sleeping and it feels a bit awkward. But um, it's stuff like that does get easier. Yeah. Yeah. And what would your main bit of advice be to somebody who's just been diagnosed or who's found out that they need an ICD? I think um, the thing I'd say to someone, if you just found out that you were going to get an ICD or a pacemaker, I'd just sort of say, you know, don't look at it as if it is the end of the world and it is going to be a real sort of limiting factor in your life. It doesn't have to be. It's actually, I look I look at it now. And at the time I was, I was a lot more sort of nervous about it but I look at it now as I've been so lucky to really get the opportunity to have one and living in the country we live in with the NHS which I might add is an amazing um I love the NHS I think it's not to look at it as it is going to be the be all and end all of everything it gives you the opportunity to get out there once you've recovered it gives you the opportunity to get out there and live your life as normally as you can um it's not going to be the same for everyone. Some people will have very different conditions to to mine. But it's basically, my advice would be, look at it as a positive as much as you can. And that might not be an overnight thing. It might take you months. It might take you years to learn to live with it and get used to it. But it does happen eventually. And if you, if you don't find just that happening, then I think it would be to seek some support because there are groups out there. Like I said, my group, there are groups out there where we we are more than willing to share, talk and listen. That's great, Becky. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. For more information about the conditions we've talked about or about living with an ICD or a pacemaker, you can visit the BHF website at bhf.org.uk. There will also be links to the Facebook groups that Becky mentioned in the show notes. If you've got any questions about your heart or circulatory health, you can call the BHF Heart Helpline and speak to a nurse between 9 and 5 on Mondays to Fridays on 0300-330-3311 or email hearthelpline at bhf.org.uk. If you want to share your story with us, you can do so via the BHF website. Thank you for listening and join us next time on The Ticker Tapes.